Hmm. I don't know about you, but I want to squeeze as much juice out of this opportunity called Redeemer King as possible before we all die. <laughs> don't you? I just, and, but actually, leave an amazing legacy behind. You know, until the Lord comes back, we build something that, that just, just builds off into next generations. You leave something beautiful behind for like our kids and their kids' kids and do something that just impacts the hardest to reach people, the most broken and hurting people. We've not even scratched the surface of that yet. But my heart is bursting full of the opportunities we have. And hey, look, I keep saying to people too, and I, when I talk to people around the place, this church is stuffed with so many gifted people and we've not, we've not unleashed all of that yet. And that really frustrates me. And there's so many things I want to do, but I know we've got to pace it as we'll talk about in September, but I'm like, this is an opportunity. So, oh, God, will you please provide everything that we need to make this thing happen? And if it's not right, so be it. But we'll be coming back to you with the next, what we believe could be a God-given opportunity <laughs> if it's not this one. It's exciting times, isn't it? But, uh, you know, challenging as well. But that's what it's all about. It's a roller coaster ride. And um, I don't know about you, but I'd rather be on a roller coaster ride than a boring tram. <laughs> I would. I would. I went on a train in Melbourne, and it was really boring. I thought I'd rather be on a roller coaster ride any day of the week, wouldn't you? As long as I can stop every now and again and get off, because once you get over 40, you start to feel a little bit sick every now and again. But I've noticed that mid-40s-ish. Mid so anyway, anyway, uh, back to Joshua, uh, this little highlights real thing that we're doing. Uh, Romans 15.4 says, Everything that was written in the past is there to teach us and encourage us uh, through perseverance and learning. As Romans 15.4 actually says that. As Paul saying to us that every story, everything we've been given in the Bible is actually here for a reason, which is why we, we don't try and ignore anything. We try and get as much out of what we've got in the Bible as possible. In other words, uh, the story of the absolute devastation and destruction by God's miraculous power of Jericho is there for us today for a reason. Now, just to recap, for those of you that have not uh, uh, been in every meeting, um, they've crossed the Jordan uh, the people are in faith. This is a generation that survived the great sifting. Uh, only Joshua and Caleb survived and all the descendants. The other people have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. This is the land promised to Abraham around 500 years previously. Uh, and now we're sort of 43 years uh, on from when they first started wandering. This was the land that was promised uh, in Deuteronomy 6.3 and 32.49. It's the land that was promised... Uh, the, uh, you'd conquest it but in Exodus 23 don't worry about the Hevites, the, the Hittites and the Jezebites you know, I've given you the land, it's going to happen and now they've got this massive mountain to climb because make no mistake uh, what we're about to read is a massive task um, you don't get a description really of Jericho in the Bible but archaeologists did actually dig it out in the 1930s don't read the Bible and think it's a myth. Don't, don't ever say this is a made-up book. It's not. There's archaeology, there's history. My faith is not based on a blind step in the dark. This stuff's out there. I've got a mate who lives in Sheffield who's got a bit of the great uh, like Nebuchadnezzar stuff. And uh, honestly, he's got, it's like his dad was, great-granddad was some um, elite agent in World War II and then went on to become an archaeologist and went all over the Middle East digging out bits of like the hanging gardens of Babylon and all kinds of stuff like that. This, this is out there. And so archaeologists in the 1930s dug it out. Um, you, can, you can probably go online and find all this or buy a decent book. Don't you prefer a book to online? I love the smell of a book, don't you? 
That's why I still use a Bible. I, I like the feel of a proper Bible. I know you can use it on your phone, but I do like to smell a book, don't you? Just for something about a book. So go, go and buy a book. Keep the booksellers going. Or you can go on Google and it'll take you 10 seconds. But you can find out. And what they found out was this, that the walls were between 12 to 17 feet thick, cut out of solid bedrock. So this is, this is a major wall. 12 to 17 feet tall, sorry, 6 to 11 feet thick. And at the top of that was a stone slope that was angled at around 35 to 40 degrees for about 35 feet that was joined to another wall. So this is a tall wall. It's about as tall as Tom. It's a tall wall. It's 12 foot. It's about 11 to 12 foot thick. And then there's a stone slope. And then there's another wall. And around the walls of Jericho was a ditch that they think was around. Now, I'm trying to be accurate here because I believe you can be accurate from archaeology. They said it's around 27 feet thick ditch surrounding Jericho. The city itself was around six acres. So, this is a group of wandering people who have now crossed the River Jordan and they're going to attack the first city called Jericho, which was designed to be completely unconquerable. That was the idea. The only way that you could attack a city like that back in the day was to starve people out by placing under siege. Or you can go to God for a miracle. So we're going to read the story. That's the context. See what you think. This is how God told them to do it. Um, also, can I just say, if there is a sound expert here i i accidentally dropped this i think that might be a sound thing now is it over there but i noticed my microphone's going to be a bit and i think it might be my fault anyway let's carry on so joshua chapter six the conquest of jericho now jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of israel no one went out and no one came in and the lord said to joshua see i've given jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. And then it starts to go a bit, a bit weird, you might think. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once, and you should do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast of the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go straight up, every man straight ahead. This is like Rich coming down this morning saying, we need £85,000, and I've got a plan. I've got a plan. You know, it's amazing. We're going to go... So HSBC, and we're going to get the worship bands. We've got, I think, about three or four bands. We're going to get the worship bands, and what I say is, like, you know, as a leader of the team here, um, what we're going to do, what we're going to do, chaps, is I want you to get your best, what's your best song you've got at the moment, and then we're going we're gonna to march around HSBC or Barclays seven times, and we'll do that all week, right, and then we'll do Shine, Jesus, Shine on the last day, 
and then, and then, and then we're all going to shout to the Lord. And then the bank managers are going to come out and go, here's 85 grand. <laughs> it's no different. It is the thing. That's what it is. Now you're all laughing. But imagine if I said that, you'd all be going, oh, I think, I think he's lost it. He's gone a little bit too far now. But that, how insecure would you feel? If that, you know, I'm coming to you as like leader of the church, leading the team. So you're meant to be a man of God. And I've gone completely potty. That's what you think. That's how we're going. And I'll be saying to Rich and the team, don't worry. <laughs> it's fine. I know it's the 10th of July, but we're going to do it on the 9th. We get, so we go auction on the 10th. And, you know, and phoning up stewardship saying, don't worry, I've got it covered. We've got a praise march around Barclays. The manager's going to come out and give us a bunch of cash. Ain't going to happen, is it? But this is what they did. So faith. And they, they'd learned that the Lord provides. And, he, and when, he, when the Lord speaks, they'd learned that he does it. They'd learned that because they, they crossed the Jordan Sea. And they'd been sifted. They'd all died, apart from Joshua and Caleb, because they had a different spirit. So the people that have come up under Joshua and Caleb, they're up for it. They're up for anything now. They're people of faith. I think many of you are here because you've got people of faith. The Lord's put you for such a time as this. Now, it, might be, it might get a little bit crazy sometimes in a biblical way. But, but it's the only way you're going to take any ground, I think, for the Lord is to totally trust him. So this is what the people did. I'm going to read loads of scripture today because I've got a chunk to get through. But it's good though, isn't it? Because the Bible's beautiful, isn't it? So Joshua, the son of Nun, called up the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a voice proceed, a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout. Then you shall shout. That's very disciplined. Like they're all unified and disciplined. You see this many times in the Joshua account. The people were behind Joshua and they were obedient and they were standing in faith, absolutely rock solid together. Verse 11, so he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. I wonder what the conversation was in the camp at that point. Here we go again. But we trust him. But it's, it's a little bit weird. But we trust him. So they kept doing it. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. It's already happened. Like, prophetically, it already happened. It said so in Joshua 2. The Lord... Has get, just 6 verse 2. The Lord has given you the city. 
It's happened. Now they've just got to take it by faith. So that's the territory we're in. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that's in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. God can find you anywhere if you're faithful. He'll find you anywhere. It's lovely, that. But as for you, only keep yourselves in the things under the ban so you don't covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel a curse and bring trouble on it. But all the silver, gold, articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into, into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Whoa. That's the story, isn't it? Imagine how they felt, marching around seven times, up to seven days. It's an utterly remarkable thing that's going on here. So here's a few brief points, uh, maybe brief, that we need to go through. Number one, uh, I'm just going to chuck these out here and maybe dwell on a couple of them, maybe even pause to pray at certain points. But what we learn here is this. God's ways are not our ways. I mean, we, we learn to rationalize stuff very early on in life. We lose, as soon as we get past, I don't know, five, six, eight years old, our ability to wonder, actually, and be in awe. It's so hard to be in faith for miracles as an adult, where everything we're about is rational. It, when it comes to faith, you know, I, I, I came to Christ at the age of 18 and uh, was in a church that didn't believe in the power of God today. And, and, and they actually would, would teach that. And so a sense of wonder was actually kind of drummed out of you. But I discovered that God's ways are not our ways very profoundly later. I remember when I first planted a church way back in 1996. And uh, uh, the theory, church planting was actually just becoming popular then. Um, but church planting was becoming more popular in more sort of middle-class areas where you take 100 people and put them into an area and then build a church around that. And that's actually started to happen again today. There's some amazing church planting movements where people take 100, 200 people, put them into an older church building and then put loads of money and resources into it, put a million quid funding in and you've got Pronto Church. The sort of church I wanted to build was to actually move on to a state and start one from scratch, which is like my preferred method and let things and structures evolve organically and just as, as people come together and family starts. I just kind of like it. You know, I find it just quite exciting that way, uh, which is kind of what we, we try to do here. But when I first planted a church, so I employed a methodology that was not fashionable at the time. I've never been fashionable, as you can tell. And I've always done things wrong. I've always done things in a way that sort of doesn't make everyone very happy. But anyway, we went, we went about it the wrong way. What they said was, if you want to plant a church, Cole, you go into you know, a good bit of town where there's, you know, at least a couple of thousand people and, uh, you know, where there's a few quid and, you know, where people are prepared to meet and do it that way. And someone gave me a book called Everything You Need to Know About Church Planting. There was actually a book called that. You know, it was How to Plant a Church. It was like 200 pages long. I said, read that, you'll be sorted out. Really? But anyway, they gave me that book, um, which I don't own anymore. And um, uh, after the first week, actually. And... uh, Karen and I moved onto an estate uh, which only had, uh, I would say, maximum like 250, 300 homes on it. So very small and very poor. And, and 
uh, because I was stubborn and the leadership at that time actually did agree to it in the end, um, after a mild bit of argy-bargy, um, what, they, what they said, what they would do is describe it as an experiment. So they were literally in leaders' meetings. I was allowed into their wider leaders' meetings. Uh, I was called the observer because I wasn't allowed to speak. But I did because I was naughty. But they, but they said, this is an experimental project because no one thought it was going to work. But God's ways are not our ways. And I knew that God had people in that place. Because wherever there's people, the Lord is interested. And you don't need to have loads of people for the Lord to be interested. Like I just said, actually, God could find David in a field. He could see me and Karen on a council estate on the side of a nice town. He could see us. We didn't need to make it happen. He could see us. And we just trusted the Lord. And we broke every single rule of church planting. We did everything the way they taught me for three years at Spurgeon's College. I did, I did the basis of a degree in church planting at Spurgeon's College. And I did everything completely the opposite way to what they told me for three years. Not on purpose. It just, it just didn't feel right. So I did it a different way. But the Lord saw us. Uh, and he poured out his spirit. And people came to Christ and... We saw people getting healed up, and you know, after two years of being there, eighteen months, nothing had happened actually. And people were saying, "Well, this ain't gonna, it's not working." I had proper sit downs with people. People were like, the ministers in the town were saying, "It's not working." And I had some quite discouraging letters from people actually. I had some people telling me off because uh, literally, one minister in the town wrote to me and said, "I'm concerned for your integrity." Because it has transpired you're spending far too much time with people who are taking drugs, committing adultery, sleeping around and basically doing unseemly things. Actually, wrote that to me. I thought, I think I read this somewhere before. I think, I'm sure that's what the Lord did. I thought he did things like that. But I actually said, we're concerned for you. So like we're breaking the rule book. But we got God's smile. Honestly, he got his attention and no, you know, we went through a near breakdown. It was absolutely horrible. We had no cash for the first 18 months. And then after two years, we had a converted household. Household on every single road of that estate. People just loving the Lord. Now, they didn't love the Lord like, you know, like in a sophisticated way. So, you know, we had punch-ups in church on Sunday sometimes. And um, we, I did find one guy... Um, taking heroin in the store cupboard uh, during one particularly disturbing Sunday meeting. Um, but it was amazing. It was amazing. Like the Lord just touched people's lives. And do you know why? I, I think we saw an unprecedented move of miracles and people getting healed up and extraordinary encounters. That totally changed my theology. Because God's ways are not our ways. And if you listen to his voice, he will pour out his spirit. It's like everything we've done, actually, Karen and I, over the years. Like when, we, when we recast the vision for CVM, Christian Vision for Men, which is, it used to be called Christian Viewpoint for Men, until I was exhibiting at the Christian Resources Exhibition, and someone came over to me, this bloke came over to me, literally went like this, he went, what's your viewpoint? I went, on what? He went, avian bird flu, <laughs> from a Christian perspective for men. And I went, oh, it's not a very good name, is it? And he went, no, you need to change it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so thanks very much. Could you just call Christian viewpoint for men? I thought it's a fair question on that point, then, isn't it? So we changed it slightly. And it was a very, very small organization. And I was with our trustees once, and uh, we were on the verge of shutting down. And when something's on the verge of closing, you have to say, is, it, is this the Lord, or are we just doing something wrong? Does he want it to stop, or are we doing something wrong? And we just cast this massive vision about thousands of guys coming to Christ in camping events. And, you know, we... Uh, Oh, we're fine. It's fine. We had a vision of thousands of people coming to the Lord in camping events and, you know, big advertising campaigns and all that kind of stuff. And people said to me, they said, we have got £5,000 in the bank. And your vision you've just spelled out is about £500,000 in year one. We've got five grand in the bank. The staff is you and a ferret. How are you going to do that? And do you know what? My chair of trustees turned around to everyone in that room and said, it's do or die. This is about the gospel. We either go for this and we die trying or we just pack up now. But this is the best vision I've ever heard for a long time, so let's do it. And now... Ten years on, CVM is in 13 countries around the world and is leading thousands of men to Christ all over the world all the time. And it came out of a little room where someone said, God's ways are not our ways. If this vision is of the Lord, it will come to pass. I kid you not, we came out of that room, the annual income for CVM at that time was £125,000. At the end of that year... With, with no budget for marketing or anything, we took in £470,000 and put gift aid on top of it. Because when you've got a vision for the Lord and he trusts you, his ways are not our ways. By faith. Hebrews 11, isn't it? By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went out into the desert. By faith, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. I haven't got time to go into it all. Read Hebrews 11. We live by faith, not by sight. God's spoken to us. We step out. He's there for us. But his ways are not our ways. So expect some weird instructions. It might be strange. It might not be the normal way that people do business. But we serve a supernatural God. So we just have to be prepared for it. But literally, people came out of those meetings at CVM saying, well... I think the Lord's spoken. How are you going to go and get the money? I said, I have no idea. I don't know. I've never done fundraising before at that particular time. Well, I do it now, but I don't have a clue at the time. No trust fund knew us, nothing. I've told you before, I had one guy came up to me in a conference when it should have been Philip Yancey speaking, but he got the wrong plane. So I had to stand in for him, and someone turned up to hear Philip Yancey speak. And they said, when's Philip on? I went, sorry, mate, it's me. It's about 2,000 people there. He went, who are you? I said, I'm called Beachy. He said, never heard of you. What do you do? I said, I run a men's ministry. He went, oh, right. And then he said, he said, um, I've got a prophetic word. I said, what is it? He said, I'm, I'm st- I think someone has got to give a gift to someone of 10 grand. What he didn't know is we just launched this new vision. I needed 10 grand to pay the salaries the next week. This is a Saturday or we were going under. I know that treasurer type people hate this sort of illustration, but it was what was happening. And then he walked, I said, well, that's interesting. I thought, oh, I really want to tell him that's me. And I felt the Lord say, say nothing. 
He just said, I think someone needs to give 10 grand. And then, and then he came back and he, he, he looked at me and he went, I just had a moment. He said, I think I'm meant to give the 10 grand gift. I went, really? I still felt the Lord say, don't say anything. He said, I only came, he said, I can't believe it. He said, I meant to come in to see Philip Yancey. I'm late. You're speaking. Don't know who you are. Now the Lord said me to give 10 grand away. Didn't say a word. He walked away again. I said, I'll pass it on to Mark Mellowish, who's host of the lead, one of the leaders of New Iron. I said, I'll pass it on. It's a New Iron event. Then he turned around again. He came back. And he said, I think I've got to give it to you. I went, I think you have. <laughs> and then, so we swapped numbers. This guy, like, I need 10 grand the next week. This is when the year we had half a million come in. And he, he phoned me on the Monday while I was, I was walking a dog. And he said, um, he said, oh, he said, why did, I'm a, he said, basically, I'm a finance advisor. I've got a finance advising company. And I've got a business partner. We're both Christians. We've got a trust fund. He said, so I announced about the 10 grand. He said, but I, I, I um, he said, I didn't tell him. And he was a bit upset because he was trying to put 10 grand into a hospital in Kenya. So I went, oh. I've lost me 10 grand. I didn't say it to him. I went, oh, it's fine. It's no problem. I was like, <laughs> I don't believe it. So I've been texting everyone. I've got this reckless 10 grand. No, I haven't. So, um, and then he said, no, no, no. He said, don't jump ahead of me. He said, let me finish. He said, he said on the Sunday afternoon, he said, so I had this problem with my business partner. I got home on a Saturday. On the Sunday afternoon, someone phoned me up and said, it's really weird. I feel the Lord's told me to give 10 grand to your hospital project in Africa. He said, so they get the 10 grand in Africa and you got the 10 grand as well. How amazing is that? So he paid the salaries. The following month, we went down to nothing again. But the Lord kept providing. His ways are not our ways. You know, he actually stopped Philip Yancey from speaking, got me to speak instead so I could get 10 grand off a prophetic guy. How amazing is that? The Lord's ways are not our ways. He does it differently. What we need to remember is in Joshua 2, he actually said he'd already given it to Joshua. So we just had to stand in faith and trust him and march around the city a few times. Second thing we learn, there is something powerful about the power of praise and worship. Look at it. Second Chronicles. I was looking through it in Scripture. I'm just going to give you a couple. I wrote loads down but at the time. Story of Jehoshaphat and the praise of God's people brought about a miracle as they began to sing and praise. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Paul and Silas in prison in Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. That's got echoes of Jericho in it, isn't it? Isn't it? The walls of the prison come tumbling down as the people worshipped. I am utterly convinced, I have to say this to you all, brothers and sisters, I'm utterly convinced that our culture of praise as we develop it is actually critical to our future. I'm not overreading the passage. Honestly, there's something there about the guys going out to shout of praise, the, the sense of intercession into what was happening. I think it's actually crucial for us. We know that our highest calling is to worship God. It's what we are made for. It's what we're purposed for. But I think when a church truly inhabits praise and gets that deep into its soul, I think that gets the attention of the Lord. And I, and I think it gets God's smile, and I think it unlocks heaven's power. 
I think that's why churches divide more over worship than anything else. I think, the, I think Satan hates worshipping churches. I think he does. I think he actually hates with all his heart people who pour their heart out to God in praise. Because it unlocks power. I think it's why he tries to make us restrained and scared to show how we feel. I think, I think that's a strategy straight out of the pit of hell. I'm not talking about swinging off chandeliers here. I'm talking about opening our hearts before the living God. We're children of God. We're so sophisticated. We're not purposed to be. But I think we need to learn more and more and more what it means to praise and praise and praise and praise. And get used to it, because you're going to be doing it for eternity in heaven. So you might, you might as well start practicing now. You know, when people started saying to me years ago, why do you keep singing that song over and over and over again? Because I always say it like that. I felt like saying, we get used to it, because it's going to happen a lot in heaven. You're going to be singing the eternal song. I, I think there's something very special about our encounter night. So I think there's a, a, a reason why we're seeing God's power at work. Well, I don't think we've even touched the surface. But I tell you this, um, sometimes when I'm driving along, I, I've got a little playlist on my Spotify account. And I, you know, Cameron's a low volume person. I'm loud in many things. And I like the volume up loud. So I am... Um, I think I actually made the girls cry once because the volume was too loud in my car. That actually was a thing, wasn't it, Annie? Yes, but that was actually to American soft rock, not worship. Uh, I remember I remember that moment uh, very well. Um, but I do like loud. And I tell you what, um, I often have loud worship going and praise music on the way to speaking gigs, meetings, driving around town, plugged into my headphones. It's not the only thing I listen to. I'm a bit of a prog rock guy, actually. You can tell by my age. do like a bit of prog rock. But I do, I, I've got me Bethelon and all that kind of stuff. I love loud praise music. And I praise my way out of problems, actually. You know, why? Because it fixes my eyes on Jesus. Gives me a little bit of perspective. It, I think it helps you feel a bit more positive. I think it unlocks heaven's power. Honestly, do. Now, weirdly, and I've got to tell you this. Some of you will know this uh, from uh, Facebook. But yesterday, I was preaching at uh, a conference in North Yorkshire. And honestly, all the way there on my motorbike, um, it was early. I left early. I was singing, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, under my crash helmet, really badly, because I had the earplugs in. So I'm like, praise the name of the Lord our God. <laughs> like, so I'm really worshipping the Lord. And, uh, and then I got into sort of North Yorkshire territory where I was going to, uh, preach this thing and I'm a semi-rural area and I'm, I'm now only doing about 15 miles an hour on my motorbike and um, and, and there's a very steep hills, uh, like hill to the right with roads going down it. It's quite a narrow road. So I'm looking around and I'm, I'm singing to the Lord I'm <laughs> looking for my turning. So I'm only five minutes away from the venue now. It's about quarter past eight in the morning. No one around. It's like North Yorkshire kind of territory. Semi-rural. And a car pulled out straight in front of me without stopping in a junction. Literally just pulled out. Didn't even stop. I just saw it come, actually. I saw him just, just out of the corner of my eye. Because you're, you, if you're a biker, 20 years, over 20 years of biker, your eyes are in the back of your head all the time. I, I basically treat every car like it's out to kill me. And this one definitely was. I mean, he was trying to kill me. So he pulled out onto me. And I literally, I mean, it's sort of quite exciting, actually. But I literally swerved my bike around this car. And I thought, I'm not going to keep this up. I've got to throw myself clear. So I actually threw myself off the motorbike and threw my bike down in the road. 
in the, in, the, in the middle of nowhere at quarter past eight in the morning. And, and it was, I had to try and avoid like a lamppost and a, and a wall, because that, that could really hurt, I think. So I, and I end up rolling down this steep hill, like the Michelin man, and uh, banging me head with a crash helmet. <laughs> and uh, I sort of watched my bike planted on its side, and I watched the driver just drive off. So he just left me in the road. So I'm now, at quarter past eight in the morning, uh, you know, many of you know I'm recovering from a broken elbow too. So I've now got a bike that's 220 kilos uh, with a top box, with a, with a smashed elbow, uh, tending still quite poorly, uh, thinking, I don't want to do. Hmm. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I feel, I, I feel all right. So you know, I thought, it's quite, quite, it's quite dramatic. I thought, I was a stunt man. So, um, and I know I've got to get to the venue because there's a bacon sandwich going and, uh, and I've got to preach. I've got to preach. I'm like, uh, 45 minutes away, I've got to preach. So the way to lift a bike up is that you, you get behind it and you, you leverage it up is a technique. Uh, but I've got a bad arm, so I was really struggling. Anyway, this guy uh, comes out of nowhere, a uh, bearded guy, suntan, blue eyes, very striking guy, doesn't say a word to me, walks over to me, and he just, he, even like this, he just went, didn't say a word, and he helps me lift my bike up. Now, I'm on a hill, doesn't say a word to me, I'm on a hill, and, um, and uh, you know, it's all a bit of a tiz, and he helps me hold the bike back so I can try and get it, you know, into the right setting to move it. And then we, he helps me roll it down the hill to a flat bit, and then he passes me this, which is going to be a symbol for me now. He passes me my snap brake lever. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I've got to work out how to brake on the way home now. <laughs> so uh, that's why it's going to be symbolic for me. Anyway, um, so then I rolled the bike down the hill and I managed to start it. And then, but anyway, so we got to the flat bit, started the bike, turned around, the guy's gone. He's just walked off. So I thought, oh, he's gone. So I so, uh, drove my bike down to the venue five minutes away and... Um, had a bacon sandwich, preached gospel, went quite well actually, cup of tea, or four, with sugar, and uh, found a tire lever in someone's car, and some clamps in a kitchen sink, and uh, made a brake lever that was sort of half useful, so I could get home. It was about an hour, 45 minute ride home afterwards. I was riding down the M46 on the way home, and suddenly I got a shiver down my spine. It was really weird. Now, when I was 32, Karen and I were, were, were senior, I was senior pastor at Bidwicky Baptist Church, and we were really going after hurting people, and the Spirit of the Lord was really moving in the church at that point. I mean, it was beautiful. People were really worshipping, and stuff has really started to happen, and many people were coming to Christ. It was wonderful. But it was quite tough in the background, and any pioneering is hard. And uh, Karen had gone shopping, she popped into Waitrose, actually, which is never a good thing on a pastor's salary, but that's what she'd done. And um, I was standing outside having a, having a coffee with a Big Issue guy. I'd never seen him in Bidwicky before. I'd never seen a Big Issue guy in Bidwicky, so I went and got him a coffee. And I uh, was having a chat. And then Karen came out. I was in chat for about five minutes. Um, and then Karen came out, and this guy, um, the Big Issue guy, I said to Karen, oh, Karen, this is Samuel. And um, this guy puts his hand on my shoulder. Like, he just put his hand on my shoulder, and he went... He said, God, I think God's really pleased with you. I said, oh, really? He said, oh. he said, I'm always here. He said, I, I, watch, I, watch, I watch stuff all the time. He said, he said, God's really pleased with you. I said, I've never seen you before. I'll tell you it over the top of my head. 
I said, I've never seen you here before. And he went, oh. He said, I've always been here. I said, oh, really? He said, oh, yeah, I've always been here. He said, I'm watching. He said, God's really pleased with you, and God, God's blessing you. God's going to bless you. You know, God's with you. He said, God bless you, Carl. God bless you, Karen. Just like that. And I went, all right. And, and now, and Karen started crying. And, and, uh, and, and we all told him, said, why are you crying? He said, something about that guy. Something about that guy. And she'll tell the story now. She'll weep. And she talks about Samuel, the big issue salesman. Jill, with his piercing blue eyes and his beard and his suntan. Driving down the M46, 66. Shiver down my spine. The same guy. I'm convinced. Middle of nowhere. Picks up my bike out of the road. Doesn't say a word to me. Helps me get, get down to a flat bit. Never says a word. And I ride away. Preach the gospel about the Lord's business. Could have ploughed straight into the side of that car. Still don't know how I got clear. The Lord sent his angel. I, I sent Mike a cheeky text. I, I sent a, a few of the uh, guys that I pray with and stuff a little message saying you might hear on Facebook and I've had a crash, but I'm still alive. Sorry, but <laughs> sorry, I'm still around. And... Um, uh, Mike said, yeah, maybe you're getting it. Yeah, you should stop riding your motorbike a little bit. And I'm like, no, it's right. Angels help me swerve. <laughs> but, but actually, an angel did. Now I'm going to speak out in faith. He is the same guy. He never said a word to me. Do you know the only thing he did do? He put his hand on my shoulder and he handed me my broken brake lever. Put his hand on my shoulder and just smiled at me. And I sat astride my bike and started the engine and he was gone. Bearded guy with a suntan and blue eyes. The start of Joshua, chapter 6. Right, end of chapter 5. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? And he said, No, rather... I indeed now come as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so before the great battle of Jericho. The Lord sent an angel to Joshua. And I, I didn't want to crash my bike. I, I didn't but I think actually the Lord stepped in at that moment as a reminder to me as a leader of the church leading the team and to all of you that the Lord God is with us and it's a holy moment so I, I'm going to put this on a bit of wood and put it on my desk as a moment the angel of the Lord helped me pick up my motorbike in the middle of semi-rural North Yorkshire bearded suntan guy with blue eyes i've been worshiping praising my way all the way to that venue and we will worship and pray and praise all our way to the destiny that god has for us as a church called redeemer king i will not permit division over worship in this church 
it's not a thing that's going to happen. You know, honestly, I, I've got to put this out. We all do our best to keep the volume right and to let the worship flow and to not be offensive. But, but you will not get warm responses if we are going to argue over style. You, you won't get a hard response from me. You'll just get a, an uninterested response. You'll get a very interested response from me if you moan at me that there are not enough poor people being reached, homeless people being fed, people coming to Christ. I'll spend hours with you working out how we can do that, honestly. How we can see people's lives transformed, but on stylistic issues, I get so bored. I just think, let's just worship the Lord and see his power flow through people's lives. When we get it wrong, we'll apologize, and when it's too loud, we'll get it right, because we've got to be sensitive and balanced and all of those things. But let's not row over that. There's something about praise and worship that offends the enemy, but the Lord absolutely loves. And uh, I can't explain what happened to me yesterday, but I know that the, the living God is with us in his vision. I think it was not a reminder so much for me as for the church. Um, I'm probably utterly convinced, actually, if I crash my bike again, I'll probably be on my own. So I think it was a special moment. So I'm not taking that protection for granted either. But by faith in Hebrews 11.30, the walls fell. They praised and it happened. Finally this. God's ways are also way beyond our comprehension. And, and I honestly feel as a church that we, we need to capture more of a sense of awe and wonder what God is doing amongst us. I'll be finishing in a couple of minutes, but I'm so convinced that we are churches to capture wonder and awe. Uh, it is beyond our comprehension. Where, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, said the Lord in Job? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it on what were its footings? So who laid its cornerstone? Job 36, how great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He's a God who fashioned the universe, who knit you together, holds atoms together. He's beyond amazing. He's beyond our comprehension. He can give us a building in Chesterfield, can't he? He's amazing. Way beyond our comprehension. His, his ways are beyond our understanding. So I'll finish by saying this. Are you ready to trust Jesus Christ with your life fully, 100%? You know, and are you ready to trust God for our future? Are you ready to apply this to your life? To praise your way out of stuff, to when the odds feel insurmountable, you can't see a way forward to make your first response to turn to prayer and praise. Is that the people we're going to be? You turn to prayer and listen to God first. The work situation, the boss who's a nightmare, the work colleague who's doing your head in. You turn to prayer first, the family situation, or reputational issue that just seems insurmountable. We trust God with it first. Relative issues. Goodness knows we all have them. Money worries. Many of us have them. Now, obviously, we need practical steps, but are you a people, are we a church that seek God's strategy first beyond everything else? Because I think if we do, we will see walls come tumbling down all over the place. And I'll finish by, actually finish by saying this. We also need to remember as a church that we are post-cross and resurrection. So many walls have already come tumbling down because Jesus has already made a way through for us. 
We're not a Jericho people anymore. We're resurrection people. So the walls of death have come tumbling down. We're going to live forever. You know, the walls to healing and wholeness have come tumbling down because of the cross. You know, we are post-resurrection people. We have resurrection DNA. Changes everything once you start to understand that. See, even in the worst moments, if you feel like you're in the pit of hell, you can remind yourself, actually, I'm a resurrection person. Come out of a bad exam. It's exam season. You're a resurrection person if you know Christ. There's always a way forward. You get your results. Remember this, those of you who are going to get your results. Look at some of you sitting over there. Results day. There's always going to be a way forward. You're resurrection people. Family situations where someone's really had a go at you on the phone. You're a resurrection person. The walls have already come tumbling down. How wonderful is that? Changes everything, doesn't it?